0: And you are listening to the Schwepp, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast online at Schwepp.net. And today we are speaking with Dylan Burns of the Freie Universität Berlin, a man who knows a thing or two about esotericism in the ancient world and who has written extensively on the esoteric elements of Middle Platonism. So Dylan, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us. Thanks so much for having me. In the last episode, we spoke with Professor John Dillon, and uh, he's a man who literally wrote the book on Middle Platonism, in that he wrote a book called Middle Platonism. And at the end of that book, he has a section on what he terms the underworld of Platonism. And in that section, it's sort of a whole weird and wonderful grab bag of movements from the Roman period, largely, late Hellenistic Roman period, which have undeniable elements of Platonism in them, but which are easy to dismiss as sub-philosophical, as E.R. Dodds put it, or otherwise not philosophy in the true sense. And this is, he calls, the underworld of Platonism, which is a very interesting way of putting it. So maybe the first thing we could do is talk about Dylan's model of the underworld of Platonism, try to figure out what exactly fits into this category. What are we talking about? and move on from there.
1: The, the underworld of Platonism is a ball, and it's a, it's, it's a fascinating collection of material and a, and a very funny term. And as, as, you, as you noted, John Dillon in his, in his book, the, the Middle Platonists, has a section at the end where he brings in what is more or less the weird stuff that he knows he needs to talk about, but he's not sh- quite sure what to do with it. And this was 40 years ago that he wrote this you know this, mm. the, the the state of scholarship at the time of this was, was not particularly advanced and he the, the section is called some loose ends right you know so so he he's he explicitly designates this chapter as as an appendix of some sorts and he and he then he describes what he what he calls the the underworld of platonism i love the term because it conjures up for me the the image of a bunch of Syrian philosophers sitting around a table gambling and smoking and drinking and putting out hits on copies of Epicurus or Chrysippus. (laughs) Right, like in their
0: secret headquarters.
1: Exactly, exactly. Rogue philosophers teaching rogue philosophy, a strange pagan theosophy, a, a, a rebel gnosis that was opposed to both the Christian churches and legitimate pagan schools of their day. And this is indeed how this literature is uh, imagined to be in, in a lot of modern discourse. I think that's why he, he called it that way. But what's 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 interesting about the Platonic Underworld is that it wasn't so underworld in its time. What was in it? What, what, what is the Platonic Underworld? It's three bodies of sources. One is the Hermetic literature which is to say dialogues featuring the figure of Hermes Trismegistus, this Egyptian culture hero, as a, as a revealer or even salvific figure. The, the second member of the Platonic underworld are the Chaldean oracles, a body of revelatory Greek hexameters that uh, describe the ascent of the soul and, a kind of mythologized metaphysics mm-hmm. and then the, the third member is Gnosticism which is of course a, a huge, huge disparate thing but under uh, Dylan's rubric all of the, the evidence pertaining to the, the, the literature produced and disseminated by figures known as Gnostics. In antiquity right. belong to this platonic underworld. What is particularly underworld or platonic about them? A later dissertation on the Chaldean Oracles by a scholar named Ruth Majersic delineates uh, five characteristics to the platonic underworld. And it's, it's a great list that's very provocative, so it's worth going through it. Mm-hmm. Five features members of the Platonic underworld, namely the, the Hermetica, the Chaldean oracles and Gnostic literature, have an quote, first, elaborate and often exasperating metaphysical construction. That is their metaphysics are complicated, long lists of things. Second, an extreme derogation of material existence. They say matter and the world is bad. Third, a dualistic understanding of human nature that envisions the soul or mind as a spark of the divine trapped in matter. Fourth, a method of salvation or enlightenment that generally involves a spiritual or ritual ascent of the soul. And five, a mythologizing tendency that hypothesizes various abstractions into quasi mystical beings. So, what makes this material distinct, according to Dylan and Majersic are these five characteristics, uh, the, the crazy metaphysics, the derogation of the, of the world and the material existence, the notion of the divine as trapped in matter, the liberation of this divine trapped in matter through some kind of spiritual or ritual ascent, and then this mythologizing tendency, where philosophical categories become members in the mythological narrative. All this is a good deal away from the more technical academic philosophizing of Aristotle or the Stoics. You don't seem to to, to see a lot of traditional academic philosophy in these texts. So the idea is that here we're dealing with a more sub-philosophical or quasi-religious phenomenon.
0: I like it. Um The first thing that comes to my mind when I hear these categories, though, is that they are um, certainly, certainly it's a case of degree, because all of these things can be found in both mainstream academic Platonist philosophy, like Plotinus even. Okay, Plotinus isn't very mythological, but, you know, uh, most of these things would apply to him. And then someone like Proclus, just across the board he fits all five of those categories to some degree, right? Um, yeah, totally. And then also you can find most of these things in some form or another in any flavor
1: of Christianity you want to look at. It's true. There, what, what, what is interesting about the, the Platonic underworld is that if you peruse this literature, it jumps out to you as really distinctive. You know, uh, if you pick up, any tractate of the corpus hermeticum or read a couple of verses of the chaldean oracles or or select a a gnostic treatise this stuff looks distinctive and and interesting and and uh quite quite different from your everyday platonist or early church writer yet at the same time the features that dylan and Majersic took to define this platonic underworld you can actually find all over ancient philosophy and theology and particularly in this period so you know my sense is they were on to something but it's it's the the sense that this material uh, was was not mainstream or that it was underground in its time is kind of misleading that's uh anachronistic I think you know a good example of this if we go through these same characteristics in the typology, elaborate and often exasperating metaphysical constructions. This is true for many writers of the period, a kind of dualism of the body and the mind, a derogation of material existence. This is true for uh, all kinds of ascetic literature. And there are a lot of different ways in which this dualism could be explained. It's, It's quite vague more interesting i think is the notion of the spark of the divine trapped in matter and i think i think here they're they're onto something a bit more because the notion that there is some element of the divine that's in human beings is something you find in a a lot of literature of this period the the notion of the human as a divine image is uh, in the in, in the book of genesis and and huge for thinkers like Philo, yeah. um, as you have recounted already. But to contrast that with the body, you know that's, uh, that the divine is sunk into a, a dark mass that is dead and needs to be freed from it. That, that jumps out at you, yeah. and the metaphor of a spark begins to be used in this in this time as well. It's rare, but it does pop up something that jumped out at me from my very first encounters with this literature is what majersic calls the mythologizing tendency which is the use of philosophical categories uh, things like descriptions of the mind different ways of perception or different kinds of virtue in telling stories and this is a a, a very distinctive aspect of of Gnostic literature describing the the emanation of different kinds of divine minds in heaven before the creation of the material world, and that eventually one of these divine intellects, uh, the capacity to be wise, wisdom, Sophia, falls away from God because she wants to know herself, she wants to know herself what what God is. She wants to know too much. It's different in the different myths. That's a kind of allegory, actually. Instead of trying to make an argument about what kind of knowledge is uh, reserved for you and reserved for higher beings, instead, a lot of this literature tells you a story about the limitations of knowledge and access to it. And that is a distinctive sort of thing.
0: That's really interesting. Um... We, we have the divine Sophia figure in Philo, but um, she doesn't fall away from anything. She's part of the plan. She's not in any way a, part of a story of a fall. She's not responsible for mankind's need for redemption. But later on, she and her ilk appear in the Sethian Gnostic treatises as parts of these elaborate series of hypostases and emanations from the Supreme Father beyond All Reckoning, that are somehow part of a celestial cock-up whereby things are not as they should be. And I wonder when you put it the way you put it that these are, say, mythological narratives, the characters of which are actually sort of modes of consciousness and modes of knowing and different virtues and stuff like this, because they represent a kind of um, grasping at knowledge that is inappropriate, right? So the Sophia falls into error because she wants to know herself or lower archons fall into error because they turn their attention from the highest reality toward this, this material world. And thus, you know, the shit hits the fan. Is this not a, a myth, mytholic,
1: mythologization of esotericism itself? Oh, that's interesting. I mean, it depends on, like, like I said, we're, we're talking about a, a lot of a lot of different stories here, right? And even the Sophia myth has has many versions. Another interesting aspect to, to some of these stories, and, and particularly the the Sophia stories, the the wisdom myths, is that knowledge is, is also creation. And so when heavenly minds characterized by different modes of knowing or the fruits of different modes of knowing different virtues or different kinds of truths proceed forth they want to create and the way that they create is to know another being and the the dual sense of having knowledge of another as a a generative or a procreative sense as opposed to a mundane sense is something you also have in greek as well as a, a coptic the late Egyptian language in which many of these sources are preserved. So to know another is also to create with another, right? And in, in one of the Sophia myths, uh, the, the long version of the Apocryphon of John or secret revelation to John, Sophia wants to know the, the, the heavenly father, but she doesn't want to do it through another consort. She wants to do it on her own. That's what I mean when I say she wants to know herself. She wants to know by herself not she needs self-knowledge and in in so doing she creates but but not in a a healthy way the the notion is that you need to have knowledge of a another being with the consent of uh, this this heavenly father this first principle in order to create in a healthy and productive way these stories of processions and emanations of heavenly beings interestingly are are modeled on depictions of Hellenistic monarchs where you have a, a throne room where a king sits in front of his court and then the various uh, suppliants to the, the throne come forward and they make a request for something for the region which they, they rule or for, their, or for themselves and then it is granted. And you, you, you read this pattern of suppliants a sense in production and glorification. It's very repetitive in this literature, which I think part of what drives philosophers crazy when they read it.
0: Right, and we've seen this a very similar phenomenon in the apocalyptic literature, where God's throne room is now a throne room, and He's got a host around Him, and when you go to see Him, you don't just see Him; you you have to talk to His His ministers, who are gonna. Convey what you have to say to God, and if you do encounter God, you're more likely to encounter His throne than God Himself.
1: Uh, it's a it's a similar setup that the, you see in the Gnostic myths. What's interesting is that the kind of mythologizing uh, that this mythologization mythologization of of philosophy and, and esotericism is is quite different in the Chaldean oracles and the Hermetica. You know, in the in the oracles. You have metaphysical beings or metaphysical entities, the the divine mind, the world, soul, as beings that you interact with. But from a ritual standpoint, it's not a a story about where all this came from, but it's a story about how you're going to get back there.
0: Right. So so something we haven't mentioned that might be worth pointing out, um, since we haven't yet covered the wonderful, though sadly fragmentary, Chaldean oracles, is that... Many interpreters of these works, including ancient interpreters, right, including the late Platonists who read them as a kind of divine revelation, saw them as something like an instruction manual, and many people want to say even a ritual instruction manual for making a divine uh, cosmic ascent. So these are practical works. These are works that are aiming to get you to ascend to the world soul and to using your innate flower of noose to the noose itself, to the hypercosmic mind and so on and so forth so there's a practical
1: side to it that's right and it, it's it's not even clear that there was a a single work called the the caldean oracles in antiquity instead what we read are quotations of them and they have a a, a similar valence throughout uh, there's a clear sense of how a Chaldean oracle is supposed to sound <laughs> yeah but but there's there's no ancient manuscript from the fourth century with the title Chaldean oracles on it it's a mm. uh, it's something that was compiled that we uh, first appears to have been compiled in byzantium already with fragments being collected by scholars in the the 12th and 13th centuries and then these compilations began to circulate as the Chaldean oracles themselves so right that's, that's how a tradition of it of it begins
0: and later the oracles of zoroaster but that's a story for another time
1: it is and the the hermetic literature tells uh, a a different kind of story rather than narrating the 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 emanation of divine beings or or giving a ritual manual the hermetic texts uh are are dialogues between this figure thrice great hermes who was an assimilation of Greek Hermes and the Egyptian God God tot, the god of magic and knowledge and, and books and with with various with various beings in some of these dialogues, Hermes is being taught himself by the divine mind in other dialogues he's teaching students like his son tat hmm. and again a, a, a play on on tot and in at, at times, he he, he does give uh, uh, apocalyptic narratives. He he tells Hermes tells stories himself, but uh, other of these dialogues are, appear to be much closer to uh, academic philosophical literature. Right. Something that's worth emphasizing about all of this stuff is that the the, the various Hermetic tractates versus uh, the Chaldean oracles versus the the, the dozens of, of Gnostic works. they're they're distinct from one another. They they, they were written by uh, different people and different locations with different rhetorical ends and did not at all belong to a a shared tradition in the late antique context. Rather, in the 15th century, when uh, Ficino and other Florentines interested in ancient revelatory and pagan literature took up the Corpus Hermeticum and began to have access to the Chaldean oracles and thoughts about what was then uh, lost works of the fabled Gnostics. Then in the 15th century, you begin to have this material thrown together and people saying, ah, this is the rejected philosophy of the ancient world right so it's
0: both reified as a tradition of sorts and sort of marginalized by these renaissance scholars so that they can demarginalize it as the true wisdom and try to use it to save the church or reform the church or at least push push uh, their
1: own um philosophic agendas yeah, exactly. I mean, if, if you think about it for a sec, you could look at all of Western esotericism, however you construe it, however you define it, as a, a kind of evolving reception history and transformation of exactly this body of texts, right? You know, I mean, if, if you want to talk about uh, Ficino or Jacob Burma or the Theosophical Society, all paradigmatic sources for esotericism or figures for esotericism you run into this stuff immediately this is this is what it's about and yet in antiquity this this material did not occupy a a singular tradition that tradition was invented in, in the renaissance and and then evolved over time you see this in a really interesting way in the ancient context with the beginning of neoplatonism because there you have a figure who's, who's very important for esotericism, uh, romanticism, and, and uh, modern philosophy, Plotinus, who happens to run into some Gnostic literature. And we know this from his student, Porphyry, who writes that in Plotinus's day, there were Christians who, and they give some names, and who circulated certain books, certain Gnostic texts, who claimed that their teaching penetrated the depths of reality further than the teaching of Plato. And Plotinus disagreed with these individuals and wrote a treatise against them, which Porphyry entitled Against the Gnostics. And then he set his students to write refutations of this Gnostic literature. Porphyry wrote one himself, and so did his fellow disciple, Amelius. Now, what's interesting is that both these, and we can read versions of some of these Gnostic texts that Porphyry knew about. Uh, versions of them translated in Coptic, this late Egyptian language, were discovered in Egypt as part of the Nag Hammadi Library in 1945. And if we look at this stuff, it, sure enough, it's full of Neoplatonic jargon, but it's written in the way where you can see that Plotinus would have found a lot to disagree with. And so what we see is that individuals who both had esoteric interests of some kind uh, uh, a heavy interest in mysticism and in human contact with the one the the divine unity in heavy metaphysics metaphysical entities uh people who uh, were, were deeply religious and had were participating in religious practice nonetheless were really opposed to each other in a lot of other ways. Plotinus had believed strongly that the Greeks were the most authoritative tradition, even if he was very interested in Egypt and came from Egypt himself. Whereas these Gnostic apocalypses that he knew invoke uh, biblical authorities, as well as the, the figure of Zoroaster, he talks about how important it is to speak using arguments whereas these gnostic texts are revelatory literature that make pronouncements but don't back them up with academic arguments even if they appear to be informed by academic arguments and then there are more mundane issues as well that are at hand. For Plotinus, the, the world is eternal. For these Gnostic texts, the, the world is limited and there will be an apocalypse and the end is nigh.
0: And also the world's so, very bad and he, he's at pains to say, no, 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 the world is good. It's the best possible world.
1: What are these Gnostics on about? Even that's though, absolutely right. Even that's though the right. texts, Plotinus is it's,
0: very down on the material
1: world. Yeah. I, I, if anything, that's the most important. Porphyry, when he talks about the Gnostics, he offers a, a second title for the treatise Plotinus wrote against them called Against Those Who Say the Maker of the World is Evil. Yeah. So even if for Plotinus matter is, is a problematic thing and uh, uh, he was a, ashamed to be in a body, as we are told, the, the maker of the, the universe must be good because that's what we read in Plato. So even if Ficino or Pico or Madame Blavatsky envisioned this platonic underworld as as being a, a bedrock of ancient esoteric speculation the individuals who produced the literature that comprised this platonic underworld did not see themselves as belonging to the same tradition at all they they were they were rivals in a very crowded ancient marketplace of ideas right
0: now that brings the conversation nicely to something i wanted to ask you about because You've talked in a way that's very, very helpful, I think, about the sort of traditionalization or the the forging of an, an ancient esoteric tradition from these disparate elements in the Renaissance or the early modern period. But we haven't talked about the scholarly construction of a tradition, which is Middle Platonism. And what makes these things Middle Platonist? Um, what, what is the common thread that would link, say... Philo, Plutarch, Numenius, Chaldean Oracles,
1: Hermetica, Gnostic Tractate. Well, the that that's a great question. Of course, like I said, this material is diverse, but there are, there are definitely some some common threads that uh, justify Dylan's denotation of this material as middle Platonic in some sense, and it is. And and the big thing is the focus on the notion of a divine mind as at least distinct in some sense if not entirely differentiated from God okay there's there's God perhaps called the one Mm -hmm. not always but often in these sources per Pythagorean influence and then you have the divine mind and then a further stratification of mediators in the world of ideas between human beings who participate in some way uh, in the divine mind through, through thinking and, and the earth. And that's, a, that's, that's huge in this literature. The, some of the Chaldean oracles speak of two intellects, a, a first intellect that uh, is, is withdrawn and serves as a, a first principle, and then a second intellect that's creative and produces the rest of the world of ideas, that this is something we find in Numenius. And so some scholars think that the, the oracles were produced by uh, someone aware of Numenius's philosophy. And Numenius was a big player in his day, so why not? Or, um, or why we not? Read th-
0: Numenius read the Chaldean oracles and was inspired by them to.
1: Could, it like could it. be. Good, good. It's a, it's a good question. They seem to pop up around the same time, Hmm. because we don't know if Plotinus knew the Chaldean oracles, but we know the Porphyry did. Right. And that's only a little bit later. On the other hand, we see this this kind of distinctions in Hermetic literature, especially the famous Hermetic tractate, uh, the Poimandres, where the divine mind itself speaks to Hermes and describes the creation of the universe. Also, reference to, uh, to the first book of Genesis, which is an interesting thing about the Hermetica. A lot of Hermetic literature uses biblical intertexts. It's not uh, simply a, a pagan teaching or, or Egyptian teaching. Right. Um, another aspect of this literature that you find that is less obvious, I suppose, is the focus, especially in, in Gnostic texts, on mental states and even virtues um, as part of the the, the the mental world that's being described, it's not only a, a divine mind but but also different kinds of cognition and and different different kinds of feeling, especially good feelings. And these descriptions of the the mental world as one that is empathetic and not just intellective recall stoicism in a big way and to me that reflects the eclecticism of middle platonism in this period this is very important for example for so-called valentinian gnosticism which is the body of texts and traditions uh, associated with the teaching of the 2nd century teacher valentinus we have a lot written about these traditions by early church fathers and also some Valentinian literature in the horde of Coptic manuscripts discovered at Nag Hammadi. And when they describe the, the heavenly world, it's a place full not just of knowledge but of feelings. And these feelings are the sort of things Stoics and Aristotelians talk about, not just Platonists. And that reflects the eclecticism of the period. Which is, I guess...
0: <laughs> S- slightly counterintuitively, one of the essential characteristics of the Middle Platonists seems to be eclecticism, <laughs> if you see what I mean.
1: They were drawing on everything. Yeah, they were, they were, they were reading widely. But of course, the, the notion that Plato was at the forefront of it all, you know that, that, that's, why, that's why we call these guys Platonists and, and not eclecticists. And that's why this underworld Platonism, even if we think it's something of a misnomer, because it was actually uh, mainstream and and well known in its day, uh, is worth distinguishing from some kind of mainstream or or academic Platonism. Because in each of the elements of the Platonic underworld we've just talked about, Plato is not the first authority, right? Mm. At the Corpus Hermeticum, you got Hermes Trismegistus, an ancient Egyptian god. He lived before Plato, that's for sure. With the Chaldean oracles, you have this the designation of the texts as being from uh, Chaldea, from Persian. This notion that the East is full of ancient wisdom was very strong in this period. Uh, some scholars call it Platonic Orientalism, mm. right? And that's very uh, important for, for the oracles and for Numenius, incidentally. And finally, Gnostic literature invokes all kinds of authorities, uh, revelations of Adam and Eve, and of Seth, of uh, rabbinic heroines, you name it. But uh, as much as Plotinus recognized, this is the, these claims to authority challenge the authority of Plato and even of Pythagoras.
0: Right. But that's interesting because in my, my reading of the tradition, barring a few exceptions, like Alcinous, who wrote a handbook of Platonism, which is one of the middle Platonic works that will probably not feature in this podcast at all because it's nothing really that esoteric about it. He basically read Plato's dialogues, did his best to construct a uh, philosophic system based on putting it all together and choosing the bits that seem to work together and making a coherent Platonic teaching and presented it in his handbook. He's like, this is an introduction to Plato's thought. He had a philosophy, here it is. Barring a few cases like that, and probably some others that are lost. So there were, there were Platonists in our period who were just basically just reading Plato, and they said, we read Plato, we love Plato, he's the guy. All the Platonists we're going to be talking about, from Philo down to Proclus, define themselves, of, they, they read Plato massively. And if you look, for example, in Plotinus, in the edition of Plotinus, and look in the Index Locorum, you'll find many hundreds, if not thousands, of references to specific Platonic texts, they don't say that we are in the school of Plato. They say we're in the school of Pythagoras, to which Plato also belonged, like uh, Numenius says. Or like Plotinus says, we follow the tradition of, founded by Pythagoras and Pharesides of Syros, to which Plato also belonged. Or Proclus, we follow the tradition of... (laughs) Orpheus and the Chaldean oracles and the ancient barbarian wisdom to which Plato also belonged however they phrase it they never we don't have a single one of them who says we are platonists this is my understanding of it anyway maybe plutarch is the exception cuz he he tries to sort of reclaim the idea of the academy and say the academy is actually the school of plato and we must revive the sort of dogmatic approach of the academy for the most part they all they're all pretty much harking back to Pythagoras
1: and Co with a dash of uh, spicy Orientalist wisdom. You, you have uh, all, all kinds of authorities enlisted in the construction of the Platonic tradition, but I still think it's Platonic for, for these guys. I still think it's worth calling them Platonists. Numenius is a, is a great example of this. There's this, there's this very famous fragment. that's quoted uh, all over the place. It's number one in, in the edition of of the and, and for for good reason. And Numenius describes the teaching of the justifiably famous nations, a ta etne, and the Assyrians, the Persians, the Egyptians, the Brahmins, and so forth. Their philosophies and practices are all consonant, belonging to a, a singular ancient wisdom. Which then, and, and this is this is the the important point we also find manifestly explained in the philosophy of Plato and Pythagoras. Right. So these guys were the explicators rather than the originators. Plato and Pythagoras would be the explicators rather than the originators. But we're going to use these explications, (laughs) you know? Numinius is not commenting on a Persian text he has before him, he's commenting on, on Plato. And this is what you get with Proclus, as well. Uh, there's a set centuries later, uh, at the beginning of the Platonic theology, he describes uh, uh, hoary teachers before Plato, and so Plato is in, is, is listing a, a line of, of ancient wisdom teachers, and yet the rest of Platonic theology is explaining lines from, from Plato's dialogues and terminology that Proclus has developed in years of writing his own Line by line commentaries on Plato—that's the stuff that he knew. It's these explications we are going to use. Hmm. At Porphyry, I think he, he was a he was a sharp cookie. The time as a student in the third century, and he's very he's very straightforward about this when he describes the conflict with the Gnostics. It's not that the Gnostics weren't reading Plato too; it's that they were. Espousing other authorities as being superior to Plato, mm. that was the problem. What I wonder, and I'm, I'm still I'm still looking for the answer, is if we even really have a Platonic tradition before this encounter with the Gnostics in the third century. You know, my impression is that people like Numenius or Alconos were reading a lot of different things, and you you had uh, these kind of uh, schoolyard brawls like with Plutarch uh, writing bad things about the, the stoa, this is, this is good academic fighting. Right. But the notion of Hellenic philosophy, Greek philosophy as a distinct tradition from what Christian and Gnostic philosophers were espousing who were turning the stuff around and say, well, you know, Plato got it from Moses. I don't know if you really have that until the third century that's a good
0: question that is a really good question that's a question which i feel is a perfect rounding off to this very interesting conversation because that's about all we have time for so dylan burns thank you very much for being on the schweb thank you so much for having me it was a blast and uh until next time be like the uh, ancient Brahminic, assyrian egyptian wisdom and stay esoteric
1: so (laughs) be be yourself